guys. Welcome back to the Thrilogy Podcast. My name's Cameron, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. Morgan. And Krista. Thank you, everyone, for your continuous support as we continue to head into our second season of the Thrilogy Podcast. I've said it a bunch before in previous episodes, but really, time has flown, and I can't believe we're already on season two. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and feedbacks, and you can let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and we'll also give you a shout out in our next episode. But for now, let's move on to today's case, the Hinterkaifeck murders. So just as a little disclaimer before we get started, this is a German case, and there are a bunch of names of both people and places. I don't speak German, so I'm going to try my best with the pronunciation of the names, but just kind of keep it in mind as I go through everything. So in Weidhofen, Germany, on the evening of March 31st, 1922, a family of five and their housekeeper were brutally killed. They were made up of Andreas Gruber, who was 63, his wife, Cassilia Gruber, 72 years old, their widowed daughter, Victoria Gabrielle, who was 35 years old, and she was also previously married to Carl Gabrielle, which we'll talk about in a little bit. He wasn't part of the people who were killed, uh, but he was killed in combat in France in 1914 during World War I. And then finally, uh, Victoria's children, Cassilia, which... This one's going to get kind of confusing because Cassilia, there are two Cassilias in this case. So I'm going to be referring to Cassilia, uh, Victoria's daughter, as Cassilia Jr., just to keep it very clear. Uh, Her brother, Joseph, and then their family maid, Maria. So just to kind of give you guys a little bit of background on this case, not only were was this family of five and their housekeeper brutally murdered, but the killer or killers, and that's something we'll get into later on, actually lived with the six corpses of their victims for three days, and the bodies of the victims were not found until April 4th, 1922. This case is actually viewed and is widely known and recognized as being the most horrifying and one of the strangest mysteries in German history. So just to give a little bit more background on this case and really all the kind of the weird things that were going on prior to the killings, there were a bunch of really strange things that were happening on this family farm. And some of them even uh, affected the previous housekeeper. Her name was Crescens Rieger. Uh, She actually had quit because she believed that the house that she was working in was haunted. And she heard strange noises in the attic, along with some like muffled and murmured voices. Around the same time, Andreas Gruber, who he was the father of the family, he had actually found a strange newspaper as well from Munich, which, again, just to kind of give a little bit of background here, Munich was about 43 miles, give or take, from the family farm. And so it was kind of weird that a newspaper from Munich would really just be there. And so he obviously hadn't purchased a newspaper. That's why he thought it was weird. And he even went as far as asking some neighbors about it, thinking that, you know, maybe the mailman dropped it off on, you know, on accident. It belonged to somebody else. But it turns out that nobody in the village had actually ordered or subscribed to any newspaper from Munich. And if those two things aren't weird enough, just a couple of days before the murders, Andreas had also discovered fresh tracks in the snow that led from the forest to the farm's machine room. So this is kind of like their barn with all of their uh, farm machinery. And the lock on that door was also broken. But even weirder, even though there were footprints leading into the barn, there were no footprints leading out. And again, as if that by itself wasn't weird, a key to the house had also gone missing. Now, later that night, they had heard some footsteps in the attic and, you know, it. you would think, well, maybe somebody had gotten into the barn or into the attic because of those footprints that led in but never let out. But after doing a thorough search of the property, nobody was found. Now, the family had actually talked to some neighbors and some friends about these strange occurrences that had gone on on the property, but he didn't want to accept any help, and they actually never ended up reporting it to the police or really anybody else. Now, it should also be noted that before Carl's passing, and remember, Carl is Victoria's husband who died in World War I, him and Victoria, they didn't have a very strong marriage, and Actually, just after a few weeks of being together, Carl actually moved back in with his parents to his family farm. In addition to this, and this is maybe one of the reasons, and we'll get into it a little bit later, but 
Victoria and her father, Andreas, they were actually in an incestuous relationship. The relationship was known through the village, and there were a ton of witnesses to this, including the former maid and other neighbors, and it was actually documented in court files. And the reason it was documented in these court files is because on two separate occasions, the father and daughter pair were actually convicted of incest. Uh, Victoria ended up uh, spending one month in prison and her father up to a year. Now, baby Joseph was also rumored to be a son of Victoria and her father, and it was pretty well known that this son, Joseph, couldn't have been Carl's son because Joseph was born in 1920 and Carl obviously died long before. Now, while these details might seem kind of irrelevant or, I mean, really gross because that's what they are, um, they do play a role in the suspected uh, and the potential killers later on. So I want to make sure I share that with you guys. So now jumping into the case on the evening of March 31st, 1922, the new housekeeper, Maria, because remember, like I said, the previous one had left after hearing weird noises, uh, showed up at the family farm. Maria's sister had actually accompanied her to the family farm. And after staying a little bit and talking, she would eventually leave. And Maria's sister would be the last individual on record to see the family alive. That same evening, Andreas, Cecilia, Victoria, and Cecilia uh, Jr. were essentially led, but almost more like something drew them to the barn one by one. And again, we'll kind of talk about that a little bit later as we continue. Now, as they were led to the barn one by one, they would be essentially killed off one by one. And Proof would later show that Cecilia Jr., the youngest, had actually been alive for a considerable length of time after the attack. And it's worth noting that she was the only one who did not get a lethal hit to the head, but rather her throat was cut. After bringing these family members or really leading these family members out to the barn, the killer eventually moved into the house. And then that is where he would then kill housekeeper Maria. And then shortly after joseph while he was asleep in bed now the homicide weapon was widely accepted as being a family-owned matic i don't know if i'm saying that 100 percent correctly but essentially what a matic is is it looks like a pickaxe both in its shape and, and also in its utility and like i mentioned before everyone except for Cecilia jr was actually killed with lethal blows to the head now, again, making this even more of a strange case, the killer then lived on the property for about three days after the killings. And police and investigators knew this because the cows and other animals had been taken care of during that time. But food from the family kitchen had also been eaten. Now, again, like I said, the bodies would not be found until four days after the murder but leading up to when the bodies were found, there were actually a ton of really close calls. The first one was a rancher who was coming back and he actually passed the uh, family farm at 3 a.m. on April 1st, only a really short amount of time after the homicides had actually taken place. Now, the rancher saw two obscure figures at the edge of the woodland, and when the outsiders or the, the guys that were in the um, in the woods saw him, they actually kind of pivoted in a way where they couldn't be seen or recognized. But again, this rancher was just passing by and he remembered this. He wasn't planning on stopping or anything like that. Now, the following morning on April 1st, two house to house sales reps actually showed up on the property trying to sell coffee. Uh, they strolled around the yard and after nobody really reacted to their knocks on both the doors and the windows, they decided to leave. The only thing that these two you know, sales reps actually saw was that the entryway of the barn was open and that was pretty much it. Now, between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. on the same day, two hunters stopped by in hopes to purchase some goods from the farm. But because they saw that there was no smoke coming out of the chimney, there were no chickens in the coop and nobody around, they decided to leave. And again, we have to remember that this is taking place in winter. There was still snow on the ground. So to see no smoke coming out from the fireplace or from the chimney, it was a pretty sure sign that nobody was home and wasn't or hadn't been home in quite some time. Now at 11.30 p.m. that same night, Michael 
Plurkel, I believe is how you pronounce his name, uh, happened to actually pass the farm on his way home. Now, on his way or on his passing of the farm, he actually stopped and noticed that a light in the or the, the chimney had light and smoke coming out of it. But he described it later as having like a very disgusting and almost nauseating smell to it. A few minutes after he kind of investigated and was just trying to check out what was going on, a strange man actually came up to Michael. He basically stretched out his arm and he had a lantern in his hand. He held the light to Michael's face, turned around and went back into the courtyard. And at that point, Michael was like, "Okay, this is super weird. I don't know who this guy is. Don't know why he just came up and shined a light in my face and then turned around and left. So Michael was like, no, I'm getting out of there. And he left. Now, on April 2nd, this is when people really started to notice that something was going on. Um, Again, it was still kind of weird. I mean, so many people had actually been to the farm and really probably been pretty close to finding out what was going on and, and finding and discovering the bodies. But it they never ended up going into the barn itself. But like I said, on April 2nd, the family was absent from Sunday worship and Victoria, she was actually a singer in the church choir. So when she didn't show up, two friends actually went to the farm to see what was going on. Additionally, Cassilia Jr. School noted that she was absent and she had no excuse or nobody had really let the school know what was going on. And that happened for two days. So they also started to pick up on something being weird. And then finally, the next day on April 3rd, the mailman noticed that nobody was there and he was very used to seeing Cassilia uh, and baby Joseph in the kitchen. So again, somebody else thinking it was kind of weird. And then finally, on April 4th, a repairman arrived at the farm and he was there to repair the engine of a food chopper. He actually waited for about an hour, seeing that nobody was around, only hearing the farm animals and the dog inside the barn. And after waiting around, he actually got started on the repair. But again, he never came across the bodies. Now, finally, at 3.30 p.m. on April 4th, this is when the neighbor Lorenz would send his son, Johan, and his stepson, Joseph. Again, we already have somebody named Joseph in the story, so stay with me here. So Johan and Joseph was sent by their dad, Lorenz, to go to the farm and see if he you know, to see if the kids could find out what was going on, if the family was there, just kind of check in on them. They returned back to their father Lorenz's house and said that nobody was there. They didn't see anybody. So at that point, Lorenz started to get kind of suspicious, thought that was strange. Nobody had seen these guys in a pretty in a couple of days. And so Lorenz headed over to the family farm with his two friends, Michael and Jacob. And it was at this point that the three men, Michael, Jacob and Lorenz, would discover the bodies of Andreas, Cassilia, uh, Victoria and Cassilia Jr. in the barn. Now, like is very, I don't want to say normal, but what happens a lot in some of these older cases, we know that people touch the bodies. DNA wasn't really a thing, so people didn't really know how to treat crime scenes. And so this would be really the start of when the crime scene would really become pretty contaminated and hard to work with because they would move the bodies. They were trying to see if they were still alive, that sort of thing. And then finally, uh, they noticed that not everybody was there. They were still missing Joseph and the housekeeper, Maria. So at this point, the three men went to check on the house. And this is kind of where it gets a little bit weird. I don't know if you guys remember at the very beginning, I was talking about how there was a key missing that Andreas had noticed that he was missing a key. And at this point, Lorenz, who had a key to the house, opened the front door and entered alone. And it was at that point that he discovered the bodies of Maria and baby Joseph. So I know up until this point, there were a lot of names, a lot of dates, a lot of times. So let me just kind of give you guys a a breakdown of the timeline. So Friday, March 31st, that was the night of the murder with two strangers seen near the house just a few hours later. The next day, Saturday, April 1st, was when the salesman and the two other guys passed by the house. They couldn't find anybody. And then remember, Michael, he got scared away by what could have been one of the potential or the potential killer. Sunday, April 2nd, 
The family didn't show up to church. Suspicion started to rise even more. Monday, April 3rd, the mailman and the school started to notice the family's absence, uh, furthering suspicions. And then finally, on Tuesday, April 4th, the murders were discovered by Lorenz, Michael, and Jacob. I was just going to say, I think it's funny how many people, or not funny, but we see this so commonly in cases where like the bystander or the bystander effect mm-hmm. happens, where there were so many people. Yeah. It just like stood out to me. There were so many people that noticed something fishy or like something weird was going on, even to the point where um, I forget what his name was, but he was like, oh, this is a little creepy or odd. I'm, I'm getting out of here. Uh, but still didn't yeah, do like anything. The, yeah, exactly. And I, I don't know if it's maybe because of the time period, right? I mean, we're talking mm, about the 20s, mm-hmm. like, you know, the 1920s. You know, if you're talking about like maybe a little farming community, yeah, you see something weird going on. But if you're maybe not from the area, who knows? But yeah, no, I thought it was, again, like you said, I don't want to say funny, but almost funny, right? Because there were so many opportunities to find these bodies sooner mm-hmm. and maybe even the killers, right? Because again, we know, and I'll talk a little bit more about it as I continue, but we know that the killers stayed in the house for the following days. Mm-hmm. So had somebody actually taken the initiative to, you know, call authorities or bring authorities out to the house. I mean, this might not even be the case that it is today. So, yeah. Well, also the people, if they were living in the house, like the suspects, if they were living in the house, they may also have started to see how many people really did come by the property and got spooked and left. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I almost wonder maybe they would stay, maybe they would have stayed longer if it wasn't for so many people coming by and checking on them. Right. But or maybe they weren't going to stay as long as they did. And they noticed that nobody seemed to really care that they kept going by and the family's just MIA. So they're like, all right, well, we'll hang out here for a little bit. No rush. So the investigation into this case was initiated by Inspector George Rygruber and his team from the Munich Police Department. Now, like I was kind of talking about just a few minutes ago, the initial investigations were really, really difficult because of how many people had interacted with the crime scene, but not just interacted and like, you know, were present at the crime scene, but rather people move bodies around. They move stuff around something that, again, like I said, happens a lot in these older cases. Now, the same day of the discovery of the bodies, the court physician uh, performed the autopsies in the barn. It was very clear that it was the Matic, you know, that pickaxe-like tool that I was talking about earlier was by far the most likely murder weapon. But that weapon was actually not at the scene. So it was almost like it got taken away or hidden or whatever the case might be. And then eventually the skulls of the victims were actually removed from the bodies. They were sent to Munich and they were supposed to be further examined. However, again, like I said, this was going on in the 20s. During the war, the skulls were actually lost and they could never be returned. So even though they were sent for further examination, we'll never know if they even arrived, if they were examined, you know, what happened there. So a clear motive to or a clear motive for the murders, at least in the beginning, was never really established. And at first, police kind of suspected that it was a robbery or, you know, people were looking for money or valuables or something along those lines. And that's why they actually had interrogated the traveling craftsmen and the neighbors and even the homeless population in the area. But. After they searched the house even more, they found that there was a large amount of money inside the house that was never actually taken. So the idea of this being a robbery gone wrong or something along those lines was kind of tossed. Again, like I talked about earlier, it was very clear that the killer or killers, for that matter, had remained at the farm for several days because, again, the cattle had been fed. Uh, The entire supply of bread in the house had been eaten and there was even a cut piece of meat inside of the pantry. So again, very clear that somebody was hanging out there and, and not only that they were hanging out there and, you know, taking care of themselves, but they were even going as far as taking care of the animals, which was something that kind of stood out to me and I thought was interesting. Now in the inspection, uh, in the inspection record from the court commission, it was noted again, like I said, in the very, very beginning that the victims were really lured to the barn and they think that the killers had actually managed to pull this off because they were like disrupting the animals and because they were, you know, disrupting the animals, the animals were restless. 
was causing noises. So one person would go into the barn to check out what was going on. They would never come back. Another person would go out to the barn. They would never come back. So like the family just kind of basically kept piling out into the barn to try to find out what was going on. And later on, because again, my initial thought was, okay, well, if there's somebody out there killing people, one of the family members had to have screamed or something, right? And they actually later tested that theory and it showed that human screams from the barn could not be heard inside the house. So it really was likely that, again, somebody went out to the barn to check on the animals, never came back, they were taking too long, and the family just kept going in that order. An investigation was never made into the claims from Michael, which, again, Michael is the one who showed up to the property. He had that guy like hold the light in his face. And then Michael was like, all right, I'm getting the hell out of there. And he actually had, you know, reported that it had happened, but there was really no investigation ever done in uh, really done uh, regarding these claims. And and again, it kind of makes sense because there wasn't a ton there. It was very weird, but there's only so much that you could do with that information so with no clear motive to be had from the crime scene and from everything police had learned up until this point uh the police decided that they needed to create a list of suspects and despite repeated arrests no murder has ever been found and the files were actually closed in 1955 Despite this, though, Detective Conrad Miller uh, held the last interrogations for this case in 1986 before he would eventually retire. But since then, this case has gone cold and it still remains, you know, like I was talking about earlier, one of Germany's most unsolved, strangest mysteries. So. Before I jump into the list of suspects, and I this part I think is going to be really interesting, and I kind of want to get your guys' opinion on each suspect after I kind of run through it. But before I get into the list of suspects, there was actually one additional suspect who was never identified, um, but definitely stood out in this case. So in the middle of May 1927, a stranger stopped at somebody's house in Weidhofen at midnight. Uh, The stranger asked this resident, you know, some questions about the murder, uh, about the murder and about all the things that had gone on. And then eventually he just shouted at him. He shouted that he was the murderer, that he did this crime. And then he ran off into the woods and that guy was never identified. So how likely it is that that was the actual killer or the actual suspect? I'm not so sure. But again, one of those potential options that we'll just never know who he was before I dive into the ones that we do know. So suspect number one, and this one's going to be kind of a strange one. So the first suspect is Carl Gabriel. I don't know if you remember who Carl is, guys, but Carl is Victoria's deceased husband who died eight years prior to the murders in World War One. So, OK, he died eight years before the murders during the war. How could he be one of the suspects? Well, his body was never actually recovered after he was said to have died during the war. So because of this, there were there was some speculation that came out that he never actually died, that he had returned to Hinterkaifeck and he was the one who committed the murders. Uh, Ludwig Meixel, I believe is how you pronounce his name, who was chief of police, also actually believed this murder, thinking that it was possible that Carl could have returned and that he could have you know, basically gotten revenge on the relationship that Victoria was having with her father at the time. Now, the way that they kind of justified this suspect in this theory is that at the end of World War II, war captives from the Schrobenhausen region uh, were released and they were released from Soviet ca- uh, captivity. Now, the war captives claim that they had actually been sent home by a German speaking Soviet officer who claimed to have been the murderer uh of of this family and of this case however these these men that made these statements they later revised their statements and so the credibility is kind of eh, kind of wishy-washy there so take that with a grain of salt and then many people i mean really anybody who kind of believes in this theory they kind of assume that this soviet um officer was probably Carl Gabriel because he had claimed, you know, they had claimed to see him as Carl after he was reportedly killed. And I don't know. It's it's very, it's a very strange theory. Nonetheless, 
I don't know that I fully believe it. I think it's interesting. I don't know. What do you guys think of this one? Definitely interesting. Seems a little far-fetched. Yeah. Dies and eight years later comes back. I mean, I get the motive. If he didn't die in the war, you know, (laughs) there might be something. It feels like we don't have any information and we're searching for someone that would have had a motive. And like the closest that like, I don't know. There's no other evidence that would point to him besides this possible motive. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the only other thing that people said is that when he came home, you know, assuming that he came home and he didn't actually die in the war, that he saw that his wife was pregnant and he assumed that it was with her father because of their incestuous relationship. But again, I mean, this is still assuming that he didn't actually die in the war, which I don't know that I believe that. But also, how would he know all of that? Like, did he come back and talk to people? Well, he knew Carl knew originally oh. that they had like that. His wife had this weird incestuous relationship with um, with her father. And I don't mm. know if I mentioned it. I might not have actually. Uh, he was actually one of the people who reported them to the police. That's why they both spent time in prison for this incestuous relationship, because he reported them. Um, so he knew again would there be motive if he didn't die in the war eight years before this ever happened? Yeah, definitely. But <laughs> I don't know that he hit out for eight years and then decided to come back and get revenge. <laughs> it seems kind of far-fetched. Yeah, I feel like the... I mean, if that was the case, that Carl like somehow escaped World War One and was like surviving and came back with vengeance. I mean, that would make the story like even more interesting mm-hmm. because it's so interesting to me when people are somewhere and then they disappear into thin air, which like would have been the case with him. Yeah. But I agree with Morgan. Seems very much like they're grasping for straws. Yeah. Yeah. It seems a little too far fetched. And like, again, like I totally get the the motive here again had he not died eight years previously, but alas. So suspect number two, Lorenz. Again, I don't know if you guys remember the neighbor who sent his sons to the farm to check in on the family. That's Lorenz. This is the guy who we're talking about. So obviously there are a couple things that immediately make him a prime suspect. The first one being that he disturbed the bodies. He discovered the bodies. I mean, he sent, you know, his family or his his kids over to check and then they didn't see anything. So he went over himself. He had a house key. He also entered the house alone. So, yeah, a lot of red flags right off the bat. Now, Lorenz came under suspicion from locals in the area because of, again, like all the things that I just talked about. But not only that, he supposedly had also said that when he was going to enter the house and his two friends, they were like, you know, why are you, you know, why are you going to go into the house? You know, like, why don't you wait? Lorenz responded that he was going to look for his son, Joseph. Now, again, this is going to be very confusing because remember, Lorenz does have a stepson, Joseph. That was one of the sons that he sent over to check in on the family. But Joseph is also the name of Victoria's youngest son. So the response didn't make a ton of sense. Obviously, his stepson had already returned from the farm to tell him that, you know, they that they found nobody. So why would he say that he was looking for his son, Joseph? But as it turns out, Lorenz had actually started a relationship with Victoria shortly after the death of his first wife in 1918. So he could potentially be Joseph's father. Well, the father of Joseph number two. Uh, Victoria gave birth to Joseph on September 7th, 1919, and when she gave birth, she actually officially declared that Lorenz was the father. Now, initially, Lorenz refused this because he did not believe that he was the real father. He believed that Andreas, uh, Victoria's father, was the real father because Victoria had actually confided in Lorenz about the incestuous relationship with her father. Um, And Lorenz also reported to the authorities that uh, this incestuous relationship was going on. So that was also part of the reason that they were arrested. So anyway, 
at the end of the day, very weird situation overall. Why would Lorenz say that he was going to look for his son unless he specifically was referring to Joseph? Maybe he really didn't know that that was his son and initially just didn't want to accept it. Who knows? So with all this said, it could also mean that that's the reason why Lorenz had a house key, right? Maybe Victoria, I mean, she said that he was the father of one of her of one of her children. Uh, she confided in him about the incestuous relationship with her father. So maybe they had a better relationship than a lot of other people knew and knew about. And maybe that's the reason that he had an extra key to the house. So when asked about this later on, uh, Lorenz would actually speak on this because, of course, police asked Lorenz about where he got the key. Obviously, we knew that a house key went missing a few days before all this went down. And Lorenz said, quote, that is a mystery to me because I know for sure there was only one key. So it's speculated that a lot of people believe that it was the same key and that Victoria had actually given it to him and she didn't tell her father about it. Who knows? Nonetheless, could be malicious, could also not be. It's kind of confusing there. If that was the case, like if, if everything I had talked about up until this point with Lorenz was it, I would say he's probably not a very prime suspect. I think it was just a lot of bad coincidences. However, Lorenz had actually previously clashed violently with Andreas because he actually wanted to marry Victoria. Uh, there are a couple other neighbors and people in the town who, you know, verify this that say that it's true that this actually did happen and another kind of theory with this is that maybe uh, victoria was looking for financial support for the baby again kind of a messy relationship a lot of these stories again this is an older case so a lot of these sources are very eh, question mark um so we kind of have to take it with with a grain of salt and then finally, Michael and Jacob, if you guys remember, Michael and Jacob were the two friends that went with Lorenz to the farm when he originally discovered the bodies. Uh, they actually reported in their statements that Lorenz appeared completely unfazed when he found Andreas gruesomely bludgeoned. So it should also be known that Victoria was the sole the sole owner of the farm and that Cassilia and Andreas had actually handed the farm over. So finally, a theory kind of remains that if Lorenz was the father of baby Joseph and then he would be the only surviving relative, he would then inherit uh, the farm from the family. And that could also potentially explain why the animals were fed because he wants the farm. He wants the animals. He doesn't want them to die. So there's that. With all this said, and, and there's a bunch of other theories with Lorenz and why he might be the suspect in this case. But what are you guys' thoughts on this one? I feel like if I had to guess, I feel like it was just some vagrants maybe moving through the area. Mm. Obviously, they were very disturbed and unhinged for what they did. But, you know, they just wanted a place and food and like they probably just kept up with the animals Again, like almost feeling like it was their home, especially if you're like delusional and you think that all that is yours. Because I just don't feel like it seems like Lorenzo, poor Lorenzo, like you have a key and a relationship with this person. And then people automatically thought it was him because he also found the bodies, which I know is common that that could be another first suspect. But mm -hmm. I don't know. I didn't get the vibe from his storyline. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um I do think this theory is more likely than the husband coming back from the death, from the dead. But <laughs> just a little bit more. <laughs> right. I'll just throw that out there. Um, but yeah, I'm not 100% sold on this one either. Yeah. And I think the one thing that um, doesn't sell me on this one, obviously animals being fed, food being eaten in the kitchen, that sort of thing doesn't necessarily mean that somebody stayed there 24 seven, right? Like they could have had a snack, fed the animals left. Right. But I can't help but feel that if Lorenz was spending any extended period of time at the farm, taking care of animals that somebody would have known, right? Like how, like this guy's just going to disappear to these, this, you know, this family farm and nobody's going to bring that up. You know what I mean? It just seems very strange. Yeah, 
And why would he be keeping up with their animal? Like, I don't know. The only theory about that, yeah, the only theory about keeping up with the animals is that he, I mean, this is assuming that we go with the theory that he really was Joseph Joseph's father and he was going to inherit the farm because of that. I don't know, but that's also really far-fetched. I mean, how are you going to inherit something when there's no proof up until this point that he is your son or that you're related and nothing ended ever, you know, nothing ever ended up happening after the fact, right? He never tried to then take ownership of the farm. I feel like if that was his plan all along, he would have done it at some point. You know what I mean? Also, to be honest, we don't even know if the person staying in the house was the killer. Cause again, that's true. If, if it's like rural Germany and kind of the comparison, I just said, the vagrants kind of moving through. If you're desperate for a place to stay and things to eat, I mean, as sick as it is, like the dead bodies, they may have been able to put them out of sight, out of mind. Or maybe they didn't even see them. I mean, we saw how many people stopped at the house and didn't even, you know, never realized it. Exactly. Because I know that even like with the the Richard, Matt, and David Sweat case, the prison escape one that we did before we all went on vacation, he just like wound up in a abandoned trailer in the woods drinking their alcohol and eating their canned food. Yeah. And like the food was bad, but my point is that he was just moving through and he found it. Yeah. He just stumbled upon it. So we don't even know, especially in this era, there was no DNA, no forensics, like you said. Could have been two whole different timelines. That's true. Yeah. It could have been just two people walking to the kitchen. That's a good I didn't even think about that. Two people just randomly stumble into the kitchen. They're like Ah oh, shit, the family's not here. Hurry, like let's grab some food, let's eat, and then let's, you know, let's bail. Never came across any of the bodies, you know, just were there for the food and said, okay, I'm out. So suspect, or should I say suspects number three are Anton Gump and Adolf Gump. So in 1951, Crescencia Mayer, I believe is how you pronounce her name, uh, she claimed on her deathbed to her pastor that her brothers Adolf and Anton had committed the murders. Now, it was fair to assume that Crescencia was certain of her brother's involvement in the murders, not only because she told two different pastors at the time, not just the one, but she actually had also mentioned her suspicions at their father's funeral in 1938. Now, public prosecutor Andreas Pop, again, not to be confused with Andreas, the father who was murdered, uh, he actually investigated the Gump brothers. And for what it's worth, the Gump brothers were descendants of the legendary robber Ferdinand Gump. Now, this public prosecutor Pop, he, despite the lack of evidence, had no doubts that Adolf had a relationship with Victoria and even with Joseph's father. He believes that Adolf uh, committed the murders after learning about Victoria's incest with her father in a revenge motive and left no witnesses. So, again, kind of going off of um, off of the dead husband theory. Crescentia also claims this, alleging that Adolf had been in an intimate relationship with Victoria and again became violently angry when he found out about the incestuous relationship. So basically just backing up the public prosecutor's theory. Okay. Victoria is causing a lot of havoc. (laughs) Like everybody, people claim that Victoria has slept with everybody. Like, I don't know if she did. And if she did, like, and not only is she allegedly doing that, but she's also making them maniacal. Literally, not only is she sleeping with every single person who exists in this town, But she's driving him to kill her. (laughs) Wow. Jeez. So anyway, um, eventually the public prosecutor pop, he actually set out to visit Anton and he was trying to, you know, catch him off guard in his questioning. Um, And during that time, like during the questioning, Anton picks up what, you know, what he was actually doing. um, And he, you know, completely starts denying everything and, you know, says that he didn't do it, that they had no involvement, yada, yada. Anton was eventually arrested. Uh, He was placed into police custody and his wife was also questioned several times. But again, she confirmed that he had taken no part in this whatsoever. 
It is alleged that Anton told a fellow prisoner that his brother had committed the crime. However, there is only like one known source for this. And he was not there and like was only told about it. So again, just like everything in this case, it seems like who actually knows. And then finally, there is one last source that does contribute to this theory. It completely discredits this deathbed confession, basically claiming that all of this, uh, all of Crescentia's siblings, like all 15 of them, also that her claims and her confession was nothing but pure hatred for Adolf and for Anton. So again, who knows? Could it be that this girl just really hated her brothers, like knew that this was a big deal and wanted to try to get them in trouble? I don't know. But from what I was able to find from my research, I don't really see any evidence that they did this. Right. I mean, everybody who, you know, like uh, Anton's wife, I mean, the two brothers, they both denied it, like all of the siblings, except for that one sibling denied it. So and I almost feel like if you're in a family of like 15 plus people, would really only one sibling be the one to rat you out? I mean, I feel like there's got to be at least a couple that are going to rat you out i don't know so that's suspect number three or suspects number three any thoughts on that one i don't believe it that it was them yeah i don't either i'm not a fan of that one yeah i feel like we haven't gotten a good solid theory here yet yeah the only one that i'm kind of sticking with for now is lorenz like that one sounds like the most probable theory but again it's also not very probable like where the like this guy just disappear. I mean, he has kids, right? Like he can't just disappear and nobody say anything. It just seems kind of weird. So suspects or again, should I say suspects number four? Again, another pair of brothers. Uh, this time it is Carl and, and Andreas Schreier. So again, another uh, another Andreas. Sorry, <laughs> it just makes it even more confusing. So. This theory, while it's a known one, there isn't a bunch of information on the two of them. There aren't a ton of police statements. There really isn't. It's very difficult to find anything um, other than kind of the theory and how it was started. But in 1971, a woman named Therese T um, reported that when she was 12 years old, her mother had a visit from the mother of the two murderers from Hinterkaifeck. I'll just say that again. So this woman is reporting that when she was 12 years old, her mother had a visit of the from the mother of the two murderers from this case. During the conversation, the names of the two men who were said to have committed the murder were mentioned, and those would be Carl and Andreas um, from Saddleburg. Therese allegedly gave the police a rather confused impression, um, but she had her mother's notes, which included the sentence, quote, as regretted that he lost his pocket knife. So take that with what it is. Again, a lot of the stuff is um, translated from German. Coincidentally, though, the murder weapons the, uh, were a Maddox, but also later discovered a pocket knife. Because remember, one of the girls had her throat slit and that was actually slit by a pocket knife. Now, those two weapons, they were actually later discovered in the attic uh, of the house later on when the farm was demolished in 1923. So at first they thought that whoever committed the murders actually took the murder weapons with them. But at the end of the day, they did end up finding the murder weapons in the attic of the house when it was demolished. Now, the reason that people kind of speculate that this knife belonged to this Andreas is because it had um, initials on it. It said AS. So people think Andreas uh, Schreier, but a lot of other people just assume that it belonged to Andreas Gruber, you know, the, the man who owned the house. So who knows where the S comes from? Maybe it was something passed down in the family. Again, kind of weird. Now, the only other source or the only other piece of information kind of regarding this theory was that Therese had also reported that later Mrs. Schreier committed suicide in a pretty horrific manner. And again, Mrs. Schreier would be the mother of the of these two boys. Um, 
so kind of weird at the end of the day. I don't know. This theory is is kind of an all over one. There are some other, you know, when I was doing my research, there were some other potential ideas and sources that I had found, but nothing that could really be confirmed. I'm personally not buying this theory. I mean, this is assuming that we're going to believe the story of somebody who overheard, you know, we're going to believe the story of a 12 year old who overheard a conversation, right? I don't know how, I don't know. It doesn't seem very legit to me. We have theory number five, and this time it is Anton, Carl, and George. And again, uh, Anton and Carl are brothers, and George is a friend of theirs. So you guys remember in the very beginning, the maid who had quit six months before the murders because she heard weird noises. She was hearing voices. She was like, all right, I'm getting the hell out of here. This house is haunted. Well, she actually suspects that maid suspects that it was Anton and Carl uh, Bichler is their last name, along with their friend, George Siegel. Now, Anton had actually helped uh, with the potato harvest on the farm, so he would obviously know about the the farm and the the premises and stuff like that. And the former maid actually said that Anton talked to her quite a bit, and he talked to her a lot about the family and the family that was living there, and one time even reportedly suggested that the family ought to be dead. So, kind of strange. The... The maid who actually left, she also emphasized in her interrogation that the farm dog barked at everyone, but never barked at Anton. Again, kind of a weird fact, but again, just wanted to throw it in there. One night, a stranger came to the former maid's window when she was still working and living there and actually spoke to her. And it turns out that the former maid was in a, quote, love affair with Anton. And I say, quote, love affair, because that's what Anton said in his police statement. And so supposedly he would often come to her window at night to try to talk to her. This particular night, though, the former maid suspects that it wasn't Anton, but rather Carl, because it wasn't Anton's voice that she recognized. Carl allegedly asked about the family, especially if Victoria was with Andreas that night, but he would eventually leave when the previous maid refused to answer. Now, George, the friend, gets brought into the equation when we discover that he had previously broken into the house back in November of 1920. He stole a bunch of items, even though he denies ever doing so. But he did claim that he carved the handle of the murder weapon when he was working at the farm and knew where it would have been kept. Thoughts on this one? This one, to me, up until now, probably seems the closest or the most realistic, I guess. So just for clarification, he's saying he carved the handle of the murder weapon. Yeah. So George at one point was actually working at the farm and that he, Mm. I don't know in what context, like during my research, I couldn't find the exact context, but I thought that it was important enough to include it. He carved the handle of the murder weapon, maybe even meaning that he like made the handle you know what i mean i guess it would make sense considering the time period but at the end of the day the most important part to to really take away from that is he knew of the tool and he knew where it would be kept on the farm so that's kind of where his involvement gets brought into it wait he knew of the tool like the weapon as in no one brought it up to him he just knew or he knows that the family has this and where it would be again based on the research it like there was no like the context of this was there really wasn't any. The only context that it had or that I found anyway was that he carved the handle of the murder weapon. And when he was working at the farm, he he did that and he knew where this tool, where this murder weapon would have normally been kept at the house. OK, because I was about to say, if he just knew like brought up that it was called a Matic. Yeah. Maddox. Yeah. If he just knew, oh, yeah, the Maddox, I would be like, okay, this guy's definitely our yeah. guy. But and just I like, I think he might have even. Out. Oh, well, then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. The only other part of this that I'm kind of like, maybe is that, um, 
like remember like i said the maid or the previous maid she remembers hearing anton say that the family should be dead so i mean again that would be putting a lot of faith and a lot of trust into what the former maid says but i don't know i can't help but feel like there was a reason she was she left you know so yeah like you said this is definitely the most probable of all the theories so far um you know when you're talking about earlier like the first theory was just the motive um and like when you're putting together a case, like you're looking for the the means, the motive, and the alibi, right? Are those the three yeah. things? So like when we're trying to piece this together, the first one only had the motive. Um, this one seems to start coming together with the other pieces as well. Yeah. No, no it's sure. means it's means, motive, and opportunity. Mm. Uh, I couldn't think of what the third one was, but <laughs> I knew it was something to do with like putting them there, like alibi opportunity, same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I think it's also interesting because they, I mean, it, it is true that they all worked on the farm, like the two brothers and the friends. So they wouldn't know the farm in and out, which again could potentially mean that they would know where to murder the family they would know what you would be able to hear from inside the house right i mean this is just kind of the way that i'm thinking because up until this point i don't feel like we've talked about anybody who really knows this this farm or this place so so i have one final theory or one final pair of suspects and it is once again a pair of brothers. <laughs> so this one is the uh, theory of the Thaler brothers. So again, as if it wasn't already confusing enough, these brothers are Andreas Thaler. So again, another Andreas and a Joseph Thaler. So another no, Joseph. No, Cameron. I was, <laughs> I was literally going to unmute myself. I was going to unmute myself and be like, tell me it's Joseph, like as a joke, and but I didn't want to ruin your <laughs> Like, I get that, you know, every time period has very common names, but what the hell is going on in this town that every other dude is named Joseph, and if they're not named Joseph, they're named Andreas. Like, was there no other option or what? Like, it's... Incest. <laughs> Literally every other person. When I was doing the research for this case and putting everything together, I I thought I was miswriting stuff. I thought I was making mistakes because everybody's name was the same. But so anyway, for this one, I'm going to refer to them as AT and JT because I think <laughs> it'll be the easiest to follow. Now, again, not only are they brothers, not only do they have the same names as a lot of people we've talked about, but this was also another set of brothers that was suspected by the previous maid. So in her previous witness statement, the previous maid claims that while she was the maid on the farm, JT came to her window at night. Again, <laughs> claiming that another guy came to her window at night. I don't know, like, like what Krista was saying. I don't know what this former maid has. I don't know what Victoria has, but <laughs> like these two girls seem to have every guy in the town coming to their window or like, I don't anyway, I won't, I won't go into it anymore. So anyway, through the statement, uh, I'll kind of read what was written in the statement. Again, remember that all of this is obviously in German. So some things might not make a ton of sense. So she said, when JT came to me at the window of my bedchamber, I did not open my window. He knocked several times on the window and also called repeatedly, ho, <laughs> but not in the way that we're. <laughs> Was that one lost in translation too? <laughs> I think it was supposed to be who, like an owl. <laughs> it's the H with the with the. It's an H O with the dots on top, and I think it's supposed to be who, who, not ho. <laughs> He's Mr. Worldwide until still is a hoe at the window. <laughs> I'm leaving this in anyway. Uh, so JT did not call a hoe out the window. I think he was saying who. 
<laughs> so anyway, he knocked several times on the window and also called repeatedly. Who? My bed was about a meter away from the window. JT was with me at midnight. When Thaler called, or when JT called, I finally indicated and asked, what is going on? He then told me to open the window. The night was so bright that I could clearly recognize him as JT. I would not come to the window, nor would I open it. JT then asked if I didn't want to make friends. I said that I had enough acquaintance through my little child who slept next to me in the bed. JT repeatedly asked me to come to the window, which I didn't do. Finally, he had to realize that I don't want to, and he said that he would have to go. After hearing the rustling of leaves outside, I asked JT who was, who was still with him. He said no one was with him. When I told him I could hear the rustling of leaves as if someone, there's, as if someone was walking in the leaves, he said that I was dreaming. Then he asked me where the young peasant woman, <laughs> Victoria, was sleeping. I replied that I didn't know and that he should ask the farmer, Andreas himself. JT then said, right, she's in the marriage bed and her father sleeps next to her. I replied that I didn't know what he said and that I don't want to. And he said that he had to go. Finally, JT said that if I don't open the door and come to him at the window, he will go again. He actually went away. The conversation lasted about half an hour. After JT left, I got up and went to the kitchen. I looked at him from the kitchen window and found that there was another man there. The two men first walked away in the direction of the well, but then turned right or right again and stopped in the middle of the stable and looked at the machine house from there. They also turned their eyes upwards. My chamber window was on the gable end of the property, and if you wanted to get to my window, you had to go into the vegetable garden. I can't say how long they stayed with the men because I went back to my room beforehand. One of the two men was a little shorter. I I suspect that this is JT's brother. The smaller one was in, uh, was credibly called a, uh, AT by the first name. The Thalers were known to have already committed various break-ins. The next morning, I told the family about my experience. Victoria told me that at the time, I should never open the window or door for the Thalers. She also said that they probably won't eat me? Question mark. I replied to Cassilia that I wouldn't stay on the farm anymore because it was getting scary to me. Cassilia didn't want to know anything about my departure. So that's kind of the excerpt from her statement for, about the brothers. And again, not everything makes a ton of sense because it is translated from German. It's also translated from German from the 20s. So, you know, again, take some things with a grain of salt, uh, particularly the part where she said she also said that they probably won't eat me, which was kind of weird um, unless she said it in a joking way. But anyway, the the thing about this specific witness testimony that actually does stand out is remember how in the very, very beginning of this episode, I was talking about how the door to the barn was broken. And I was also, um, you know, and in, in during this witness testimony, she said that they went to the that area of the barn. Right. So could something have happened there? Could they maybe have broken in? Not sure. So anyway, that's pretty much that theory. It's not super, super detailed or anything. It's rather more of just a, you know, something that the former maid had experienced. Um, it, I don't know, to me, it almost feels like it could, it could be kind of credible, but I don't really see a reason that they would kill the family. You know, that seems kind of strange to me unless it was like a break in gone wrong. That's the only thing I could think about. Maybe they tried to break into the barn. They didn't have enough time. They tried to do it again. You know, Andreas came out to the barn to find out what was going on. They killed him. And as the family kept coming out to see what was going on, they kept killing them to, you know, not have witnesses. I'm not sure. Kind of a weird, a weird theory, but an interesting one. Any, uh, any thoughts on our final theory? I agree that it's, Unlikely because it's like what you said uh, to kill the whole family would be extreme. Yeah, unless someone. unless you really just didn't want any witnesses. But again, you wouldn't even have you probably wouldn't have witnesses like they wouldn't have to go inside and kill the new maid and kill the baby. Yeah, I was going to say the baby then uh, to me. Yeah. 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 I don't know. After going through all of these theories, I feel like I'm going back to what Chris has said, and it might have just been like a random person yeah. coming through, you know, like all of them. There's something off with the theory, yeah. you know, 
Yeah, not there's like not a single solid theory. Like, I mean, realistically, with any of these theories, you couldn't possibly convict anyone. You know, none of them have the the evidence and the information that you would need for that. So, yeah. But nonetheless, we would love to hear your theories on this case. I know this one was a little bit of a longer one, but certainly an interesting one. And we'd love to hear what you think or if there's any theory that maybe I could have missed. Uh, You can obviously find us on our social media. Uh, and you can find all photos and sources for this case on our website, thrilogypodcast.com. We release new episodes every Monday, and each week we post two clues leading up to the debut of our next episode. The first clue is food for the heart. Be sure to check out our Instagram for the second clue later this week. Thanks again for listening, and as always, you can keep up with all things Thrilogy on social media at at Thrillgy Pod and make story requests on thrillgypodcast.com. Thank you.